Every day, we rely on food, fuel, and fiber. But how much do you know about these industries we depend on? In this podcast, we dive deep into the production and processes of these everyday essentials. This is Field Points, an original podcast production from Siri Solutions. You're listening to the Field Points Podcast. I'm your host, Morgan Seger. Today, we are launching our second episode of our agronomy series, which is co-hosted by agronomy associate at Siri Solutions, Jessica Thurman. Our guest today is Jeff Nagel. Jeff is a past Indiana CCA of the Year Award recipient, and he also has received the Agronomic Achievement Award in 2008 from Purdue. He comes to this conversation today with just a wealth of knowledge and experience about agronomy, and he shares not only what makes an ideal spring, but challenges he sees customers run up against and the management decisions that they can make to best manage those challenges. So here's our conversation with Jeff Nagel. So I'm Jeff Nagel. I'm an agronomist for Region 3, and I've been with the system for about uh, tw- going on my 28th year. So I get a chance to work with our uh, branch managers, our account relationship managers, and uh, local farmers in our region. And so we work on uh, agronomic programs and training, and it's a lot of fun. With 28 years of experience, I asked Jeff if he has ever seen two seasons play out the same way. The interesting thing about farming is, and I actually farmed for 23 years on the side, so Ceres was gracious to allow me to do some of that. And there's a cycle to it, right? You do some of the same things, but every year is different. And so that's that's kind of the fun and that's kind of the challenge. And if you're a farmer, that's the challenge is because, you know, things can be uh, more difficult in certain years, but, but uh, it's also fun for us because... You know, you're always problem solving and looking for ways to try to make the farm operation better. Sure. That's what I was thinking for farmers. Maybe it's a little risky, but for agronomists, it's kind of job security because you get to help work through new things every year, right? Yep. Right. And it's like a meteorologist. You can look back and kind of explain some things, but when you're going into it, well, it's just, it, you know, we deal with the weather and it throws us a lot of curveballs. Yeah. So, and that was one of the things we, we started talking with Betsy is what makes an ideal spring? So typically, you know, if I look back, 2023 was actually pretty good. So I, my perspective is going to be based kind of in West Central Indiana, Northwest Indiana, because that's my main area that I cover. And uh, you look back, we had growers that were planting early. If you remember, Easter was about April 9th. And then the 10th of April, we had a warm stretch right before there in that week. And more and more planters started to roll into that season. And the ground conditions were just perfect. I mean, I, I had we had growers planting even no-till into situations that you wouldn't have thought about in a lot of springs. You know, and, th- and then it kind of cooled off, so that kind of kept some out of the field a little bit or slowed down. So if you could have made that a bit warmer, that would have been perfect. But I, I think this year was really good as far as having stored soil water. And then that dried out, <clears throat> we had really good planting conditions, seed conditions were great. And if you could tweak that a little bit, you would have probably said, hey, give me a little more warmer soil temperatures. But oftentimes when you get those warm ups, you also get thunderstorms and rain events. And we, we didn't have those. So it was it actually ended up being a pretty nice spring this year. Yeah. So what types of things that was all very positive. Right. But what types of things can derail? an ideal spring. So you get things planted just right. And then what should we be on the lookout for? Yeah. So, so typically it's weather related, Morgan, right? That's uh, Jessica. Those are the things that throws <laughs> the curveballs. And yeah, I, I just did a couple farmer meetings and we were looking back at the last two years. We've had two pretty good springs of getting off to a good start and, and really not a lot of um, what I would say complications from a lot of water events. 
So typically you get these big rainfall events after planting and you get, you know, seedling blights or crusting and, and our replants have been really pretty low. So I, I, I went back and did some analysis. Uh, there's a neat website. You can go back and look at historical records. And, you know, we, we definitely for 22 and the 23 season, we're on a drier bias. You know, we, we end up progressing into a, a moderate drought during the growing season, but we went into this season with stored water but two years in a row, we've had very few like drowned out spots. And, and so, you know, nitrogen loss becomes a bigger issue when you have wet soils, you know, diseases, both soil and foliar diseases become a bigger issue. And we really were, didn't have those kind of conditions this year with much. So it was, it was actually a pretty good season once we caught some timely rains and that was the key this year. But, those, but usually those rainfall events early is what sort of derails this and gets things off track. Sure. So what led to having stored water and are we in a situation for 24 where we might see that again? So we're, so we, uh, if you think back to the 23 season, we were, we were actually pretty dry and then we started catching some rains. In fact, I remember in Jessica's area was probably a little bit wetter. It caught some rains there, but we, we were drier and then we started catching some spring rains. In fact, we were getting some of those in February and early March. And we're like, man, are we going to have a delayed planting season this year? And then, it, then the rains quit. And so we, we got recharged a lot. So that, that's always a good benefit when you have that. And, and we're kind of the same way. We had a lot of operations done this fall. Like if you want to do fall herbicide ap, you know, applications, tillage, lime, fertilizer, we had a pretty open fall. And we've now started to catch some of those rains. So, you know, we had some a few weeks ago before the ground froze. And then this one's been kind of a gradual thaw with some rainfall events. So we kind of track the 100 centimeter soil moisture content and we are recharging some. So uh, that's a good thing. So hopefully we'll continue to get some of that and then dry off when it comes planting season, Morgan. That sounds awesome. Mm. I feel like for the last two weeks, it has just drizzled every single day. So yeah. you're telling me I should be positive about that? Yeah, don't be complaining about this cloudy weather right now. Okay. Right. So we, those are good things for us. Although we all would like some sunshine yeah. at some point. No yeah. Kidding. Every now and then it would be nice for it to peek through, but That's right. that makes a lot of sense. So in the years that you've been an agronomist, is there any mistake that you've seen happen during planting that every year you're like, man, I wish we wouldn't do it that way or we could change it, but we still see it happening. Yeah, you know, it, it's tough when you're farming and this the scale of farm operations have gotten bigger. So, you know, we, we as agronomists always talk about ideal conditions, right? Well, it's rarely do you get those ideal conditions. <laughs> so as a farmer, you, you, you're making the best decision that you can. Um, and so if, if you see uh, and particularly if you're if you're trying to cover and plant a lot of acres, <clears throat> there's there is the capacity is certainly increased, but it still takes so many days to get over the ground, and you're never going to get it exactly perfect, you know, all the time. But you know, there are times probably where you know a tillage operation or a planting operation uh, is done a little bit. I always kind of say on the the heavy side or the marginal soil moisture content side, um, and and that can result in some you know, sidewall compaction and crusting if you get the, you know, the rains. And, and if you plan on those conditions, you, you need to keep the rains coming to get the establishment going. So, you know, th those are hard things, you know, because you have to make a judgment call on what to do. But, but I would say you're in, you're out. Um, there's usually some cases where that happens. We had, a, we had a grower this year that went before Easter planting and, um, and used a high-speed disc, which is, you know, those can be I've mixed emotions on those. They make a nice seed bed, but if you get a rain, they can sort of cause some crusting. And 
Um, but they did catch a little rain, the ground cooled off, and, and we had emergence issues. And so, um, the, and those things happen, but they're judgment calls. So it's, you know, as agronomists, you want it to be perfect, but it never is. Sure. And then it's managing how imperfect is it? Do we need to take a step to reactively try to fix it? Right, right. I mean, that's why that's why so much tile drainage has gone in the last decade or two. You know, you're trying to mitigate some of those issues, and and some have more tile than others. But if you can, if you can get more of the ground in good shape, then things go easier. And and that's where you make a judgment call. And in terms of if it's if it's you know ninety percent there, you're gonna you're gonna go. You know, or or even sometimes eighty percent if it's getting late. So it, it's just making the right trying to make the best decisions at the time. Sure. So speaking of late. What would you consider for your territory, early planting, late planting, and what is your opinion on the order you plant your crops? Well, that's certainly changed. That's one of the things in the last uh, probably decade that's changed a lot. So it used to always be plant corn first, and then you planted soybeans, and typically the corn would be you know, going in for our area the second half of April uh, if ground conditions were fit and any time on from there. And soybeans were planted afterwards. Um, and, and as farm operations grew um, and you started to have a, a corn planter and a bean planter, then a lot of times those were running at the same time. And I would say that, you know, today you look at it and sometimes uh, the beans are going in first or at least get some of the beans started. And, and so a lot of that will go, you know, again, the ground conditions. But I would say in our area that uh, what I would say early planting, I call timely planting, right? So most of the cases, if you get into, you know, the 10th of April on and ground conditions are good, you're going to you're going to have farmers planting. And so particularly if the forecast is favorable and, and we had conditions like this year and and we know we've had years where later planting does well. But I, I had a neighbor once that he was a good farmer, experienced. And I, when I first got back into the area and I met him on the road one day and he goes, you know, he goes, I like to have my corn planted in April. Things just go a lot better. You know, corn's you know, get in the good growing season. It's drier in the fall and yields are generally better. And and so I've always remembered that. <clears throat> but this, the transition to soybeans is there's a bit less risk if you if you go under maybe not the perfect conditions. And, and you still want to plant under good conditions, right? Um, but if you lose a bit of the stand, well, beans can compensate a bit more. And we know that planting date's important on soybeans. That's 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 pretty clear today is that I, I kind of look at the optimum planting date for corn and beans being very similar. And then it's a matter of, you know, where the ground conditions are fit or not and how much risk you want to take. You know, so you, you lose a 10 or 15% on a corn stand, that's a bigger deal than 10 or 15% on a soybean stand. So what would be the earliest you think is appropriate to plant soybeans? Yeah, that's, I had a, we had one customer did some in March oh, really? uh, a few years ago and uh, it, it turned out okay, but they went through a couple freezes and a uh, thin stand and we battled, they battled some weeds and stuff with it. So I would say, you know, it, it all depends on the spring. I think the, the, the year is going to give you something, right? A certain environment and you don't know what that is, but I, I would say for a lot of our cases in, in West Central Indiana, you know, I don't know. I'd be too excited going a lot before April 10th. You know, we had, like I said, we had some that went the 6th of April this year, and that was that was the replant. But certainly, you get into April 10th and beyond, 
I think uh, in West Central Indiana, ground conditions are good. I, I think there's, you know, those are reasonable risks. You know, you go to Northwest Indiana, that's a little cooler and up particularly up by Lake County, you're probably not gonna go quite that early. So where do you consider yeah. late planting that in your area? Yeah, late planting is a good question, Jessica. So it depends on the year, right? Right, it depends, right? So I remember a few years ago, we had some uh, late planted. We were we were at the end of May and even into June. And um, you, you would say, you know, you look at the, the books and the planting date and the typical yield and say, man, we're, we're going to lose 20% and stuff. And we, we had some really good, actually even some corn that year. And we've had beans planted late that uh, can do well. So it, it's an odds thing. I, I would say, you know, a lot of times you, you, you get to the end of May, your growers are thinking a lot harder about whether to plant corn or beans. But if you kind of look at the weather pattern changes, our, our first frost in the spring is, you know, or that last frost in the spring is occurring earlier. And the first frost in the fall is occurring later. So we've gained some days there a little bit. So probably in a year, some people have pushed, uh, you know, corn even into early June. You know, there's risk with that. Uh, soybeans, we've had soybeans planted into, well into June and still do well. But you, you just know that the odds are not as good as something that's planted, you know, in, in the fat last half of April and into the middle part of May. But not on Mother's Day. But not on Mother's Day. Mother's <laughs> Day can, is usually not the day to be planted. In fact, two years ago, there was like one... I remember uh, we had one two-inch rainfall event in 2022, and guess what day it was? It was Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah. Did you run into wet corn this fall in your area? So we did not as much as in Jessica's area. So we, if you look back, we had a lot of crop in the ground by May 1st and okay. into the first part of, of May. So uh, yes, we had some May planting, but but we were we were running again that week of the 10th and then more and more planters ran and then we kept going and so we we had a good amount of corn and beans in in the month of april and and by mid-may it was it was very much winding down uh, with the, with a few exceptions so we did not run into I, I would say we had a more normal situation and so we did not run into quite the dry down issues that you know jessica had in some of her areas and so that was, um, you know, there was a, maybe a bit wetter in cases, but overall pretty good shape. Okay. It, do you think that that was in your area, Jessica, that that was from just later planting or were there other factors in the season that kind of led to having wet corn at harvest? I think there were several factors throughout the season. Um, like Jeff said, yes, uh, in our area, we don't really necessarily plant a whole lot in April. There are some guys that do, but majority do not. But the main things I think that really interfered with corn drying down was just all of the lack of sunshine that we had um, during the months of June and July. We had a lot of cloudy days and corn needs those, you know, really hot sunny days to really get going and to really, really move forward in the growing season. And we kind of lacked those days kind of when they were prime. Whereas where Jeff, he kind of timed it perfectly where he had some cloudy days, but the corn could afford not having the sunshine that necessarily we needed. I guess so. Planting dates, it's crazy how it, it affects your whole season. It affects when pollination hits, it affects when obviously like grain fill starts. And so if you have those cloudy days at a different time compared to others, you might be more fortunate or less fortunate than other areas. Yeah. yeah and, 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 and Jessica's exactly right. And, and dry, corn dry down is a function of heat. And so if you black layer later in the season and, and there's some historical 
work done and you you know the, the number of groin degree days you accumulate in late October November usually are less and it just mm-hmm. isn't more time so yeah it's a lot of factors gotcha so what is one single technology that you would credit to the most significant change you've seen in your area Oh, one, that's difficult. There's lots of things. I, I would have to say, you know, when I came back in 1996, you know, we, we had good technology and things and good hybrids, but I, I have to give a lot of credit to the seed companies and plant breeders because the, the genetic potential is just there today. You know, I, I do feel like in corn, on our better our better managed fields, we're kind of, I don't say plateauing, but we're kind of in a range you know, uh, it seems like a lot of our good growers that I think are doing good management systems, you know, field averages in that 240 to 260 range with exceptions of better ones uh, that, that occasionally hit. And we certainly had a record this year, but I, but I, I actually feel like the, the genetics and soybeans have come a long way. So if I, since I came back in 96, I feel like the genetic potential of these yields has, has gone up a lot I and mean, we're on that kind of projection i don't know what the next step is to, to get pushed through some of these things um, it's probably going to be incremental things and trying to figure out those yield limiting factors but the companies have brought us some very good genetics that are that have yield potential how have they done that well i'm not a plant breeder so okay. i appreciate <laughs> I had a cousin that was a plant breeder um and i think you know, they, there's a combination of things. So certainly we have the traits that, that, are, that are, those are a lot of the, you know, mitigation of insect damage or, you know, give us weed control options. But, but I think it's, it's just however they've been selecting out inbred lines and making crosses to improve that genetic potential. It's a bit of a numbers game, I think, from, from conversations with him. And, you know, there's new technology in the plant breeding that's, you know, kind of made that accelerate a little bit. And we, when we saw that in corn and then the soybeans, we, it was pretty frustrating as agronomists working with soybeans because it seems like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if a grower had a 60 bushel bean field, he was pretty excited. And if he averaged that across the farm, he was really excited. Today, and when the, some of the newer genetics came out and we're planting earlier, we're managing them more intensively, you know, our better fields are in the 70s and 80s. And that's exciting, you know, to see that kind of potential. So things, things have shifted, but the genetic potential, I felt like, you know, maybe wasn't there as much. And now I think breeders focused on corn and they focused on beans and, and we've got some good material to work with today. And there's been some work done, some uh, some reviews of modern era corn hybrids, and it's it's really interesting. We talk about this at farmer meetings, like you know, what are things I can do to to manage for yield, and and one of the things with these hybrids is we know we're we're gaining bushels out of kernel weights, you know, bigger kernels, heavier kernels, and that's coming through an extended grain fill time, and keeping that plant healthy. So you know, we know those type of things, so then we can manage. Okay, make sure we've got nitrogen during grain fill. Make sure our plant health is good, and maximize that genetic potential. Sure. So what's one thing that you wish more growers would plan for each year? I think we do a lot better planning today. Growers systems, I and I remember one of the podcasts we were, you had on earlier is it talks about farming as a business. And and it is. That's that's a change from when I started. I mean, it was always a business, but a lot of farmers farm because they they grew up with it, they liked it, and as farms have scaled and gotten bigger, it's truly a business. And um and so I think growers in general do a better job of planning and and there is always this tension in production agriculture. We are generally we're a commodity based 
product, right? I mean, we have some specialty crops and we have some premium markets or waxy corn or or whatever it might be. But for generally speaking, we're kind of a commodity market. And so there's always this tension between the agronomics of trying to grow more bushels and the cost of those things and trying to figure out, you know, where are where is the return on investment? So you know, those are always things that are on the back of our mind. And I think on farmer's mind is like, if I'm going to make a spend, how do I, how do I make that work? And, and one of the things that we see is like wheat, wheat control has got more expensive. And so it, and one of the nemesis weeds we've been dealing with for quite a while, and it hasn't gone away, and it's always there, is, is water hemp and palmer amaranth. And I feel like we've talked about it for years and years. And <laughs> Jessica, we still are, right? Yep. I mean, it is like, it is the driver weed that is resistant to seven different, you know, sites of action of herbicides. And one of the strategies is, and we have we have our growers doing a lot better, but is the less you ever have that weed emerge, the, the further you are ahead with it. So sometimes we do a good job planting, but getting that residual herbicide at planting time, sometimes layering it in crop, where sometimes things go haywire is when this when the season throws you curveball or like this past year ground conditions are really good so gar- farmers just start planting and then everybody starts to scramble okay now i got to figure out i got to do plan b on weed control because now i've got the, the crop planted and and maybe even up before things happen and so just that process of like when you get behind the eight ball it, it really creates a lot of challenges, not only for the grower, but for us in, in retail of trying to, to manage those situations. So so sometimes it's just staying with the plan or when the plan changes to still make sure you've thought through and, and can get ahead of stuff a little bit. Because it's when you get behind that that becomes the challenge of trying to catch up. Sure. And we don't want to walk through a field with a hoe. We, we don't. <laughs> and most people don't like to do that today, although it's still an option. It's just not a very good one. Right. <laughs> I think that's another big change. You know, we talked about, you know, the biggest change that you've seen. I think that's another big change is that before we could just go out there and, you know, spray glyphosate or spray, you know, broad acre and not necessarily plan for weed control. But now that's like one of the most important plans we need to have in place and have a plan B just in case if, you know, plan A doesn't go as expected. Yeah, that's a great point, Jesse, because I remember I, <clears throat> I was with a company called American Cyanamid and I left them in 1996 to come back here. And that was the first year of Roundup Ready Soybeans the first launch year and the adoption rate at the time American Santa had like 60 70 percent market share on the soybean acre that's you think about that that's a lot mm-hmm. across the Midwest and Roundup Ready soybeans were introduced the genetic the yield potential of those beans weren't stellar I mean they were okay but we got weed control and it simplified things you know think about one of those technologies and it's like yeah that was a game changer until we developed the resistance and now, and so we still use glyphosate in a lot of our programs. It still brings a lot of value on certain weeds, but our key weeds, giant ragweed, you know, water hemp and palmer, mare's tail, they're resistant. And so and now we're kind of back to doing things more intelligently. And, and so that is, that is a, that's a key. So I'm guessing most growers know if they have those resistant weeds. Is there an, a way they need to be evaluating their herbicide program, or should they be going into the season with this assumption that they have resistant weeds and they need to have more comprehensive approaches? Uh, I think growers are very aware of the of the issue. You know, in an ideal world, we'd be using. We had this. We had one of our recent grower meetings. We had a guest speaker, and he talked about uh, when Roundup Ready soybeans hit the market and then Roundup Ready corn, 
a lot of herbicides came out with, quote, a Roundup Ready rate, which was a reduced rate of the soil applied herbicide. So the intention was to take some of the pressure off the post, but not use a full rate of a herbicide because Roundup would clean the clock on everything post. And so I think we've, we're still a bit in that mindset of getting back to getting away from those those reduced rates of residuals and getting more robust rates and multiple modes of action soil applied that's still a transition and it doesn't come cheap it, that when you get into the full rates um, you know and, and growers you know commodity prices are down going into 24 you know they, they look at those things it's also more expensive to try to clean it up post oftentimes with less success than spend a little more money up front on those situations and that's why the, those premiums, you know, for non-GMO or premiums for plenish soybeans or, you know, crops that have those premiums, the premiums look really nice, but you also have to, you know, count the factor of the higher price of weed control as well. I think a lot of people kind of leave that out of the equation when they make decisions. Yeah, and if you're not thinking about it as a system and all those other things that are going to impact your ROI at the end of the day, you might be surprised at the end of the season. Yes. Yep. So have you seen these resistant weeds force a change in like trade adoption or are people mostly just working on their herbicide programs? So we've been we've been pretty fortunate in agriculture to have new technologies, but we're kind of running out of some of those on herbicide. So like in the days with cyanamide when you had pursuit, pursuit, you know, controlled things and then we had this single site of action mutation that made it basically non-effective. So that group of chemistry is off the table. And we had some of those in the corn that worked too. Then we've got, then the Roundup came into the system and helped us out. Then we had the, you know, the dicamba soybeans and now the Enlist soybeans and Liberty soybeans. But if you think about soybeans, we're, Jessica, we're down to really Liberty, dicamba, and, and Enlist one on, on those platforms with some effectiveness. With, and even some of those can be variable control. So that has those traits have helped us on the corn side I'm, I'm very concerned about our reliance on a group of chemistry we call the group 27s or hppds things like we sell as callisto and Centerate, you know loudus armazon impact and in various premixes we rely very heavy on that group of chemistry for corn and so we're seeing some evidence of what I would say less sensitivity in certain fields. And so we, we just need to be really smart about how we put together weed control programs and get multiple sites of action in there, get some full rates. If we lose that type of technology in corn, we're, we've got some real challenges ahead of us. And the way around it is multiple modes of action or multiple yeah. sites. <clears throat> yeah, so a lot of times is they do uh, soil applied herbicide with more than one, you know, two or three sites of action to have control against water hemp, and that comes at an expense. But it, but it is it is probably the best way to, to mitigate some of the issues. And, and then when you're post-spraying, you hope there's not very many. So a lot of times when you, when you do a really good foundation herbicide program on corner beans, then growers are like, I don't, I don't want to spray yet. It's like, no, spray because you, you want to get stuff when it's small, you want to canopy over, um, because if you're, if you're spraying, it's a numbers game, if you're spraying post-emergence with a lot of weed pressure and you get 95% control it, with water hemp, it's not good enough, right? So it's, it's really trying to mitigate those ones that emerge and get them sprayed timely to get them controlled. Sure, makes sense. So as we look to 2024, what is one thing that you're most excited about to kind of watch or see how it plays out? As agronomists, you always 
interesting, you know, interesting to see how the season goes. But I think um, your always goal is to sort of just get better, right? To, you know, get better and produce, you know, working with the grower and trying to, you know, either be more efficient in the production or your increase in bushels and profitable bushels, not just bushels, but, you know, that return and investment. So I'm excited about every season's always exciting because you just don't know what it's going to bring and what the upside is. I mean, like this year, who would have guessed we would have set a record on corn and beans in the state of Indiana for yields, right? No one would have guessed that probably. So, um, so just looking for those keys, those, those, those risk limiting, those, I guess those factors that can impact yield and trying to figure that out. That's always, that's always the fun part. We're going to conclude this episode with a hot seat question. So there's uh, four topics I have, and you can choose one of them. Basically, just give your opinion or just walk through and explain the topic. So your options are Palmer water hemp control, which you kind of touched on a little bit. We can dive in more if you'd like. Tar spot and corn, top beneficial planter technology, or aerial imaging. Well, Jessica, those are all pretty good ones. So I did touch on the weed control piece a little bit. I think I'll do the tar spot. That's an interesting one because, you know, you think of plant diseases, it's relatively new for us, right? I remember 2018, and I actually remember reading some articles in, in some of the literature about tar spot in Illinois, and you just kind of read, it's like, I've never seen tar spot, and you kind of glance over it. Then 2018, well, we learned what tar spot was, right? <laughs> it was, it was, it was. 30, 40, 50 bushel yield losses. And then we've had some seasons where we're learning. I give a lot of credit to, you know, Darcy Talenko, Purdue, and, and Marty Chilvers, Ohio, or Michigan State, not Ohio State. There's a lot of Midwest pathologists have done a lot of good research. The, the manufacturers are involved with that too. But we're still learning. Every year is learning with it. And so we've had two seasons where tar spot has been really kind of a, a lower key issue but 21 was bad. And so you're, you're prepared for it. You're geared up for it. And then it, uh, we just didn't have the weather. So that classical disease triangle of, you know, we know the pathogens there going into 24. We, we know late season, Jessica, you saw fields where, you know, we've got overwintering structures that are there in the field. Um, we know that, you know, no hybrids are completely resistant. They're all some level of, there's differences, but they're all some level of susceptibility. So it's just a matter of the weather. And, and so that's one where we just have to be on top of it. And, and so a lot of that is we, you know, you're kind of watching the weather pattern. I think June is a key driver month of rainfall and humidity. Um, and we've had two dry ones back to back to the last two years. So, so it can be one that, you know, most, most growers are doing plant health type treatments. You know, when you make those applications can shift a little bit and how you approach that. And that's a bit of the, the the management of it, the flexibility of what you do during the season. But it is one you don't go to sleep on, right? That's good. It is. It is. It can be. Uh, it can take some bushels off pretty quick if you don't manage it right. Sure. So as we think about this year, you know, the last two years, like you said, our June has been drier. If we have more moisture in the month of June, what actions would you recommend growers take? We probably start looking sooner, right? Uh, so. If we plant timely, a lot of times, you know, we're silking and sometime in that first half, early part of July to the first half part of July. If July 3rd was the earliest it's actually been detected, you know, I like identified Darcy has some plots that she uses for kind of sentinel plots. Um, and July 3rd and 21 was the earliest it had been detected. So if we start getting those wet patterns and we're planted pretty timely, it's a matter of, of getting in the field, scouting, 
there, there's some messaging out there that if you see tar spot and you haven't sprayed for it at all, that you're too late. And I don't think that's exactly the data would suggest that's not the case, but you don't want to be, but you want to be timely. And so what we tell a lot of our growers in our farmer meetings we did this year is if it's a wet or June, you know, you may plan on that R1, R2 silking to blister stage application. And that's your kind of plan. <clears throat> but if it's a wet June, then we need to be paying attention. You know, a lot of our group is in fields. We scout fields. Other, a lot of our account relationship managers are in fields. And there's a network of uh, university people that are scouting fields. And so you're kind of watching for that to see when it might start to show. And then you, you may shift your application, your first application earlier if it starts to show up earlier. So that may be that you make an application before silking in a certain type of year. 21 was the, I would say, the first year that we could pretty much say with confidence that there were cases where two-pass fungicide would, would have paid. And most years, the one-pass has been sufficient, but those are the things we're still learning. So if it comes in earlier, we make the fungicide application earlier, and then you get back out and probably spray again or check fields in another like three weeks to spray again, potentially. So if it happens to be drier, then then we're back to probably more normal of that R1, R2 application timing. Okay. Do you think, or does it already exist, where we see like resistance or tolerance issues with fungicides in the same way we have with herbicides? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, and there is some. Well, we we do have that somewhat. So in in row crops, we we really have three you know, three modes of action. We have the strobilarins, the triazoles, and what we call the SDHI inhibitors. And so um, a lot of the, pre, what I would say premium, good fungicides today have two or three, oftentimes three of those modes of action there. So um, we do know, and, um, and universities have some concern about that a little bit is, uh, for example, in soybeans, there's a disease called frog eye leaf spot, and the strobilarin fungicides are very, very good against it. But there is there is some resistance that has developed to that, and so it's important you're not using a single mode of action, and, and it is a concern of uh, over relying somewhat. I, I feel like a little bit is you you manage that the best you can, so you, that's why you don't always just want to make fungicide after fungicide after fungicide treatment. And generally, we don't do that. We do we do a pretty good job of that, but that is one thing we just kind of going to keep in the back of our mind. And the best plan to avoid having a major issue is to keep layering those different modes of action. Yeah, do that. And and to be honest with you, not just don't spray just to spray. I mean, there are there are some things that are promoting multiple passes. And it's like, well, you know, there if you've got you've got a history of tar spot or corn after corn and heavy disease, then that probably makes sense to make a, a two pass program in there. But the idea of you know, of using multiple passes. And generally we don't do that in, in that part, but the idea of multiple passes like that year after year, that's where you tend to get, get into issues. Should there be considerations around like hybrid and variety tolerances to different diseases? Yeah, we know, we know that um, just as, you know, plant breeders bring things, no, nobody's gonna be bulletproof to everything, right? So there's, there are differences um, tar spot is, is one that we know there are differences between hybrids level of susceptibility. I wouldn't say there's, we haven't seen what we'd say Jessica probably like resistance to tar spot, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. we've got different levels 
and that can that can help you. So it sometimes is something that may be a little bit better against tar spot naturally. You know, you may get by with a fungicide application, but but you might have a, a, a really good hybrid that yields well <clears throat> that you can manage with two passes. So it, it's just, a, I think just knowing and, and thinking about that, Morgan, kind of keeping that in your mind of how we're going about that and just not indiscriminately, you know, make multiple passes all the time. And, and I think we're doing a pretty good job. I don't think we're, since we're doing that a lot. We're pretty much a firm believer in the, you know, you look at the hybrid today with, with nitrogen and during and, and plant health, we're, we're pretty much a believer of a, of a fungicide for grain fill. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there's the promotion of, you know, a pass up front too. And, and I'm not saying they're in the place for that, but that those are the type of things like, you know, we got to learn, right? We've, mm-hmm. we've, not, we've been down this path before multiple times, so let's be a little smarter how we do that. Sure. Just yeah. being considerate of yep. all of the factors. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Anything else we should know about you or this growing season? I don't think so. We're, you know, every, every year's a, a fun one, you know, you don't know what it's going to bring. And for the farmers may not view that, but I think for farmers too, they, they view it as a challenge and, uh, and it's always nice when you can start off on the right foot, right? That, that, that always makes the season go so much better. I, I was using the analogy someday with Purdue basketball. I think they went into play at Nebraska and, and uh, Nebraska was ready for them, you know, and so Purdue came out and they were a little slow and hitting some shots. It's like, okay, you know, maybe, you know, Nebraska's ready for them. Maybe things kind of start shaping up and that's somehow a growing season starts, right? You get started a little, a little tough, and but things kind of started coming around. Well, that was one of those games where <laughs> it didn't come around. And sometimes you have a growing season that you just battle every, every part of it during the year. And so hopefully, uh, hopefully this will be one of those years that we start strong and, and finish strong. Sure. I love that. Sounds like it would have been a two-pass game. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of Field Points. And thank you, Jeff, for taking time to join us once again on the Field Points podcast. If you want to hear more from Jeff, I encourage you to go back to our Series 6, Episode 2, that was released in March of 2023, as he joined us to talk about the Agronomy Technology Toolbox, where he talked a lot about fertility management and the tools you can use to optimize your yield. In our next episode, we will be joined by Troy Jenkins. He's going to help us round out our agronomy series and share his perspective on optimal seasons, common challenges, and how the environment impacted our growing season in 2023. The show notes for this episode will be available at series.coop. That's C-E-R-E-S dot C-O-O-P. If you enjoyed this deeper dive, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Your review and feedback will help other listeners like you find our podcast, and we are so thankful for that.